Lord Jesus, we've prayed. We've prayed on our knees. We're praying now again. Open our hearts. Because tonight could be a night that you do something forever, eternally, inside of us. So let it be that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, has absolute sway and ownership of our lives tonight. In the name of Jesus, amen. I read this story. I said, you've got to hear about it. It it took place a year ago now, a year ago in December. I'm from the state of Oregon, so this, of course, caught my attention. Garbaz Singh is a Canadian Young teenage guy, but he has summited Mount Hood some dozens of times. He's, he just keeps coming back to Mount Hood, the highest peak in the state of Oregon, and climbing it. And so this time, a year ago, December, he is climbing it. Obviously, it's, a, it's an ice climb. He's, they've got their crampons and their ice axes and picks and such. He's up in a on the south side of Mount Hood in an area known as the Pearly Gates. And he slips. He slips while at the Pearly Gates. He slides 500 feet. Yeah. Beat him up pretty bad. And lands in an area on Mount Hood called Hell's Kitchen. He was at the pearly gates. One slip, and he lands in Hell's Kitchen. Sometimes it's, it feels like that's our salvation. God, we're good. Ah, one slip, and I'm in Hell's Kitchen. And it can be a yo-yo, a back and forth. I'm saved, now I'm saved. I have a, I have a chaplain of one of our schools that called me up just six weeks ago and said, I just, I, I just want to talk. I, I don't know him that well. He, we had met a couple of times. And he said, I just, I just want to tell you, I, I think I'm lost right now. I said, when, when, when did that happen? Where, I mean, were you saved? Was it yesterday? Was it? And you can, well, you can kind of chuckle at him, but, but it's the reality. It's, it's how we feel. Now, I want to clarify one thing because this could be very misunderstood. There is a term that I am fond of, and I've used it a lot, and I, I think it's a valuable term. It's called, I, I use it, it's, it's the final generation. Unfortunately, there has been some controversy about a term called last generation. And so if if you're at all in that conflict, just know that what we're talking about with the term final generation has nothing to do with your issues on either side of last generation. I I wish the devil hadn't taken a term and, and used it to... To, 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 to divide people. And you may feel very strongly about something. And that's, I, I don't want to diminish that. 
I just want you to know that when I use the term final generation, I mean it in the sense that there will come a generation, there will come a people, a group of us, a community of faith, that we are it before Jesus comes. It's, it's a chronological term, the final, the last, the end. All right. So what about this? It's one slip. Do we go from pearly gates to hell's kitchen? I want that, to, that question to just color your, your vision tonight as we study. We're going to Revelation 22. Before we get to Daniel, our journeys through Daniel. Now, we have journeyed all week through Daniel. The, the Daniel purposed in his heart, Daniel chapter 1, and then the, the, the king's dream and how that interacted with Daniel and the three worthies and Nebuchadnezzar's testimony and Daniel in the lion's den and Daniel's prayer life in Daniel chapter 9 and, and 8 through 10, really. Those are some powerful narratives. And, and these last tonight and tomorrow morning, we're, we're kind of just putting a, a few last details together in these final chapters. Now, I know there's a lot more in Daniel chapter 10, 11, and 12. And by no means are we, are we ex, just escaping from that. We're, we're just, my concern is that we have been so concerned about the what and the when that we've missed the how. And so we're just going to spend time on the how. But the what and the when are also important. But just in our limited capacity to focus on one thing at a time, we're just focused on the how. And so you might be scratching your head going, ah, there's something. Oh, he just missed it. No, we're just, there's something that we've collectively missed. We've known all the players. Oh, who's going to do what? What's going to do when? Except what about me and God in all of this? And so that's where we're spending our time. Okay, Revelation 22 and verse 11. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He that is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. There's this call from heaven, this clarion call from heaven that says, you will be on one of two sides. Now this speaks, this flies in the face of, of what we are naturally inclined to. Well, I, I would say we're naturally inclined to, to describing it as three camps. There's, there's wrong, there's Satan and his agenda, and then there's God and his agenda over here, and then there's the third camp of me. And sometimes I'm a little, oh, sometimes I fall a little that way. Sometimes, uh, most of the time, I, I'm this way. And, and I'm in a, it's kind of a safe zone, no man's land. That, that doesn't exist. We've made that up. Either or. That's, that's the Joshua call, right? Choose you this day. Whom will you serve? That's the call from heaven here. You will, you will be in that camp or you will be in this camp. There comes a time, the last call from heaven. You and I have forever made our choice. The cases have been set Jesus is about to come. That declaration, as John hears it, is said to be just a little different in Daniel. But it's pointed out. Daniel chapter 12. 
Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1. We're just looking at verse 1. There's, there's a bunch more context. There's a bunch, a bunch more we could talk about. But we're just, just, just Daniel chapter 12 verse 1. And we're going to revisit it tomorrow. So it's kind of two cousins. A part 1, part 2 tonight and tomorrow morning. As we close off the book of Daniel. What has become my favorite book in scripture. And argued by some that it will be what stirs the last great revival. All right, Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1, at that time. Now, of course, that points to the context, and we'll get into a little bit more of the context tomorrow morning. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects his people, will arise. Now, let me just, that was the NIV. Let me just read it for you in the New King James. Maybe that's the version you have, and that's, I like the New King James. I, the Bible I I've, have been using as my personal reading bible is the niv but the king james the new king james just just says this a little bit better in my opinion at that time michael shall stand up the great prince who stands watch over his people did you catch that at that time michael the the great prince who stands watch over his people shall stand up he's standing but now he's really standing There has not been a time, apparently, that God has not stood for his people. But in Daniel's understanding, uh uh-oh, something just changed about the way God is standing. That's why I like the New King James. He's always been standing. He's always been watching over his people. Satan... Satan has led some of us to a place where we minimize our unfaithfulness in the minor affairs of life. Ah, come on, God, it's not a big deal. I've given you all the big stuff. And we reflected earlier on this week about how how messed up that really is. Like if you're going to be unfaithful, go big. Uh, One author puts it this way. We would despise a man who sells his mother into slavery in order to gain a king's ransom. Oh, that's wrong. But I mean, he got something big out of it. But we would be utterly disgusted by a man who sells his mother into slavery to gain only a few dollars. Really? And so it's this idea that, that we, have, we have kind of said to God, look, God, you've got all the big stuff. Let me manage the small stuff. I think I can handle it. And God's going, no, the small stuff is what really, really sets you apart. Well, Daniel chapter 12 says, Then there will arise a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. And at that time your people will be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. That's Daniel's version of of Revelations. He that is unjust, let him be unjust. He that is righteous, let him be right. There is clearly a separation now. And then there's an intense time uh, of, of distress, of turmoil. And God delivers everyone found written in the book. 
this scenario, this Daniel chapter 12 verse 1 is the story of every narrative in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 1, Daniel brought to a point of decision. It was just about diet, but he purposes in in his heart not to defile himself with the portion of the king's meat nor the wine which he drank. And they knew, Ashpenaz knew that that was But somehow, God delivers Daniel. The three worthies, they are thrown into a fiery furnace. God stands in there with them. Daniel, because of his faithfulness, is thrown into a lion's den. God stands there with him. This is the, the, the summary of all of the narratives of Daniel. There's a crisis, there's a conflict first, and it places God's faithful in a crisis, in a time of trouble, in an intense period of tribulation, and then God delivers them. It's repeated over and over and over and over and over. And if you just needed, if you needed to leave right now, whoa, the roast is in the oven for them. Oh no, I gotta go. Here's the message. Every narrative in Daniel, including Daniel chapter 12, verse one, that summarizes every narrative, here it goes. There are those who will choose to be faithful to God in every detail of their life, which will create conflict. Conflict will then bring them into crisis. Crisis, they're faithful. God delivers them from the crisis, and they're glorified. It's the same narrative for the final generation. They are faithful to God in everything. In that conflict, that leads them to a crisis, a time of trouble. God delivers them from it, and they're exalted. It's just over and over as if God is saying, hey, I need you to get this message. This is how it plays out in the final generation. Now let me tread carefully here. Because the question has been, well, what is, so what does that mean to be faithful? Does, are you, is that perfect? And, and if, in that crisis, I mean, we have to stand alone, right? Without God? Ah, not, not, not so fast. Not so fast. Revelation 14, verse 5, describes this, this final generation as one that is blameless, without fault. It's a Greek word, amomos. Blameless. It's... it's it's sister word, it's Hebrew word for that Greek word, is used through the Old Testament to describe some of the patriarchs. It's used to describe the lamb, blameless, that was used in the sacrifice. Abraham was blameless. Job was blameless. And then Paul, Peter, and John all use the same word to describe those who are Christians following God in the New Testament. This blameless. I I believe with all of my heart, here's, here's just... My conclusion, based on Scripture, the Word, and how it's used consistently, that 
If you ask God tonight, am I right with you? In an instant, you'll know. Because in your heart of hearts, you know. You know if there's something that you haven't given to God. You know. I know. Oh, God, we don't even really have to have this conversation. I know. I know there's that thing that I'm protecting from you. I'm not blameless. If that's the case. Patriarchs and prophets. Those who are unwilling to forsake every sin and to seek earnestly for God's blessing will not obtain it. If there's anything I'm not willing to give up. And most of what I struggle with are not the big things. I've, I've never really had the, the feeling or, or the, the temptation to kneel down before an, a rock and pray like an idol. I've never really felt like killing somebody. I don't know that I've ever stolen. In other words, it's not, it's as if sometimes we come like the rich young ruler, all right, God, let's go through the list. And he says, uh, what about what about your stuff? Oh, <laughs> I didn't know we're, I mean, that's just, we know, we know we can talk to God. Is there something I'm unwilling to forsake? Then I won't obtain God's blessing. People say, come to me and say, I don't feel like I'm right with God. I say, is there anything, anything in your life that you are holding back, anything? Well, I mean, there's a couple of things that I, then you're right. You're not right with God. Go be right with God. Give it up. Let it go. Surrender. When you say, I surrender all. Surrender all. So there's this, this final generation that are living. They're apparently, as, as Scripture presents it, they, they are not different than other generations. They just live through the most intense period of earth's history and they do it in the same style that Abraham and Job and even the New Testament Christians did it. In other words, the benchmark for heaven doesn't change. Abraham doesn't get in because he was here and then we have to get up to here. That's changing the finish line. But there will be, at the final generation, a time of trouble, of distress that God's people will go through. And that scares us, you just be honest about it. What are they going to do? Is it going to be like waterboarding? Are they going to, what are they going to do? No wonder the Bible doesn't tell us anything about that. But it does tell us how we will go through it. It does. It's Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 7. How awful that day will be. There will be no other like it. It will be a time of trouble like Jacob's. But he will be saved out of it. 
Wait a minute, let's, let's, let's just hit the pause button right here and talk about Jacob. Well, you know the story of Jacob. He deceives his brother, that nice little dinner out in the prairie, and, and then he's got this birthright, but it doesn't, he doesn't trust God to work it out, and so he ends up doing the whole ghost hair thing, and, and then he runs for his life, and he's gone. He gets that whole deceived thing for a wife and then two wives and then their maids and, and the goats and the spotted and the striped. And finally, it's over. He's headed back. He, he's going back. And in Genesis 32, the Bible tells us that he comes to a place where the news is that Esau is coming with hundreds of armed men and, the, and he knows his brother. And those armed men are just a cogent tale of what he's coming for. There's no guessing. They're not on a little hike. They are out for blood. They're for war. And so Jacob divides his company and he's left alone, it says. He's left alone by this little creek. And the Bible tells us that he begins to pray and to claim God's promises. Lord, you have said, you told me, you, you brought me to this place. God, I'm just doing, I'm following what you have told me to do. And then he pleads for forgiveness for his sins. Two things, two things took place. Ha <laughs> oh, I love this. It's so assuring. Two things took place in Jacob's night of wrestling. One, he begins to, to confess and to, to plead with God as just like Daniel did in Daniel chapter 9. God, forgive us. Cleanse me, cleanse me if there's anything between me and you. Forgive me. Let us be reconciled at one he spends his night searching his heart. There's a there's this picture that Jacob is just bent over in prayer and he's saying, God, please. Forgive me. Oh, that's a prayer that God cannot miss. God shows up, put a hand on Jacob's shoulder. Jacob turns, unaware of who that is, and begins to wrestle. And the Bible uses this term of, of bulls kicking up the dust. They are just clashing. This is for their life. Jacob sees it that way. He is now wrestling for his life. It's a spiritual wrestling. Beloved, it's, it's this invitation that God 
God wants us to be. Come, check this out. I want to wrestle with you. I want to be close to you. I want you to examine your lives and I want to take anything out of your life that is going to keep us apart. Let's work together on this. God is there, right there, working with Jacob on this. And that's the second point. Two things happened that night. One, Jacob wrestled to to not, it, it had nothing to do with Esau. You read Jacob's prayer in Genesis and you don't hear, God, stop Esau. Smack him down. Blind him. Get rid of him. Save us. Send angel. No, there was none of that. It was all God. How about you and I? Are we okay? Is there anything in my life, God, that is keeping us apart? Jacob's greatest desire the night before he was to die was to be right with God. Number one, Jacob's time of trouble was not about his physical well-being, but his spiritual at-one-ment with his God. And we have turned this whole idea of a, of a turmoil, a time of trouble, as it were, a crisis, we have turned it into this question of, am I going to be safe? Our greatest concern is our physical well-being. Just admit it. The whole question for Jacob, Jeremiah says, it's just like Jacob's time of trouble. What was Jacob's time of trouble about? It was about his spiritual well-being, just like Daniel prayed. He wanted to be right with God when he went into the lion's den. The three worthies, right with God, if we're going to go into that fiery furnace. The crisis is not about your physical well-being. All who lay hold of God's promises, as did Jacob, and be as earnest and persevering as he was, will succeed as he succeeded. Jacob's loyalty and obedience was tested. It was tested in a unique way, and so will the final generation. They will be tested in a unique way. But the conditions for their salvation are not different than the conditions of others in the past. We have somehow changed this theology, some of us have somehow changed this theology to say, no, 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 no. Those who live before Jesus comes, they will have a different expectation for their salvation than anybody else in history. And that is dangerous thin ice. Not supported by Scripture. Does God expect absolute and total faithfulness? Absolutely. Jacob, in that night of wrestling, he is wrestling for his spiritual, his spiritual health. God, is there anything that's not whole in my soul? He wasn't worried about Esau. About this time of trouble that, Dan, that Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1 talks about. Number two, where is God in the time of trouble? Because there has been some communication that says, buddy, watch it. You're all alone. You better, ha you better be prepared because there's, you're going to be by yourself. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Just as a father, I'll tell you, that doesn't make any sense. If one of my children are 
in a crisis? Where do you think I'm going to be? Well, you said that's, yeah, that's, yeah. all right. Let me, just give, let me just paint the picture for you. Matthew 28, verse 20, the, the very final declaration of Jesus as he leaves this planet to be enthroned and as prince of this, rightful prince of this planet. He looks down on his faithful followers and says to them, I will be with you always. Especially, even at the end of the age. <laughs> Jesus saw fit to actually emphasize that I'm with you always. Especially at the end of the age. And that's exactly what Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 12 verse 1. Here's the great prince standing for, oh now he's really standing. He's always stood with his people, but there comes a time when God really stands with his people. The final generation will experience what no other generation has, a period of time that God no longer holds Satan back. He's allowed to rip across this planet. Great Controversy tells it this way. When he leaves the sanctuary, darkness covers the inhabitants of the earth. In that fearful time, the righteous must live in the sight of a holy God without an intercessor. And that's where some have, whoo, nobody's going to be with you. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is, this is, it, the context tells us it then, unsheltered by divine grace, they have no protection from the wicked one. Satan will then plunge the inhabitants into the earth into one great final trouble as the angels of God cease to hold and check the fierce winds of human passion. All elements of strife will be loose. In other words, we've had, an, we've had somebody while we complain about our lives and the, and the pain and the suffering, and beloved, there's some real stuff that's happened. I know. I'm not trying to belittle the pain or the suffering that you've experienced, but apparently we've had somebody that has, has been buffeting it. Jesus has been receiving the full fury of Satan, but he's only allowed some of it through. So who, who, who should be the one really complaining? Jesus, he's saying, I've, I've been taking this from Satan for so long. I've only been letting some of it through. But there will come a time when God says, all right, in these final moments, I'll stand back. But does that mean he, he removes himself from his people? Ah, oh, we've read that wrong. Satan has never had unrestricted way, and now he does. In the final dark moments of this earth's history, he does. But the Bible makes it clear that this time of trouble is, that Jacob's night of wrestling is a, is, is a picture, is a foretelling of this time of trouble, of this distress that God's people are in. And two things happen. One is that Jacob wrestled with his soul and his God. And number two, God was closer to Jacob than he had ever been. Who grabbed, Satan, uh, grabbed Jacob in the night? It was God. God who laid hold of Jacob. And this is where it bleeds back into this narrative. And, and, and for sake of time, I'm just going to give you a few references. Throughout Daniel's wrestling, as he's pleading and praying and, and interceding for his people and his own salvation, the whole Daniel chapter 9 and Daniel chapter 10 experience... Here comes God 
touching him. Hey, hey Daniel, he, he, the, the Bible uh, translators uh, did a fine job, but they just made it sound much too gentle. In Daniel chapter 10, verse 10, verse 16, and verse 18, the messenger touches Daniel. But we, I've, I guess I have always then pictured that as kind of a tap. Hey, Daniel, I've got something to say to you. When the actual significance is that the divine messenger grabbed Daniel. Daniel, good to see you again. Bear hug, whatever it was, he grabs him by the shoulders. It's hands on, it's personal, it's intimate. We've written it off as, as, as kind of heaven's a, a little bit like cautious to buy. Hey, I just have a message for you. No, the messenger shows up and says, Daniel, you precious man of God, you highly esteemed man of God, come on, give me a hug. In the midst of the soul searching of Daniel, the divine messenger is brought closer to Daniel. Where was Jesus when the three worthies were in their night of crisis, when they were in their time of trouble? Where was Jesus? Standing with them in the fiery furnace. Where was he when Daniel was in the den? He was there. Where was he when Jacob wrestled that night? He was there holding on to him. He was there embracing him. Let me just rapid fire some references for you in the Bible. Let me just read these things about the time of trouble. Psalm 27, verse 5. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me on a high rock. Psalm 37, verse 39. The salvation of the righteous comes from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. Isaiah 33, verse 2. O Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. Be their arm every morning. Our salvation also in the time of trouble. Jeremiah 14, verse 8. O hope. O the hope of Israel. His Savior in time of trouble. What do we get? What does Scripture tell us about the time of trouble? God is nearer to us in the time of trouble than any other time. He, while he releases Satan to do his unhindered work, he says, go get him, Satan, but I'm going to go be with him while you get after him. The time of crisis becomes the time that we are held by God himself. And this, this terrible conclusion that has spread, that there is a moment in which you will stand by yourself, is biblically unfounded. It's just not there. When the Bible talks about the time of trouble, it talks about God's nearest present. When the story of Jacob, God is there holding Jacob. When the story of Daniel, that prefigures that final generation, God is there holding them. Will there be a crisis? Yeah, yes, yes. Over and over, the narratives of Daniel tell us, hey, first, there's conflict, but because of our, well, there's our faithfulness, and that leads to a conflict. You cannot be faithful to God. 
and not come in conflict with the ways and the politics of Babylon. Well, that conflict leads to a crisis. That crisis. It's a refining time. It's a soul-searching time. Two things Jacob's time of trouble tell us. One is that it's not about our physical well-being at all. It's about our souls at one minute with God. Am I right with God? That becomes the cry and the prayer of every member of the final generation, those who are living through this time. But secondly, where is God in the time of trouble? He is nearer than ever before. He's holding us. Oh, it will feel a little bit like a wrestling match. Oh, God isn't giving up on you. Are you faithful in all that you do? Yeah, God is calling you. If there's something in your life that's keeping you, that you know, you, we don't even have to list it out here. We know. Go be right with God tonight. Before you sleep, lay it all on the altar. God, I'm not going to carry this anymore, this lust, this lying, this selfishness, this pride, this unforgiveness. I'm laying it all, God, on tonight. I want to be faithful, completely faithful to you. Is there, is there anything, God, that's between me and you? Beloved, he can resurrect your, your body, but he can't redeem you if we're not surrendered. There is, there is an absolute imperative call to this. Does that mean every time you slip, you go from the pearly gates to hell's kitchen? No. Well, that's not at all what it means. The best illustration I've ever heard was that we've often pictured or we're made to feel like our journey with God is a ladder. If you fall, you fall and you hit hard and it hurts and you're down at the bottom again. But maybe it's more like an elevator. When, you, when you're in the elevator and you fall, oh, you got to get back up. As Proverbs says, the righteous man falls seven times. Why does he fall seven times? Because he keeps getting back up. And that's the soul searching that we have to be about. And that will lead us to a conflict, and that conflict will lead us to this crisis. But where's God in the crisis? Are we, are we going to have to face this crisis alone? Is this, are we going to be now having to, to just stand on our own? Okay, God, I've got it, and I'm just going to hold on and make it. Who do you think you are anyway? Oh, God says, I'll, I'll be there. I'll be your protector through all of this. The two things that are, that are absolutely clear, unequivocal about this crisis, this time of trouble, is one, that it's about your soul, not about your body. It's about your relationship with Jesus. And two, God will be nearer to you through it than he's ever been before. He will hold you, hold you through it. That's what he did for Jacob. He, he took hold of him. He wrestled. They embraced through the night. Michael, the great prince, 
has always stood for his people. And there will come a time, according to Daniel 12, verse 1, that he will stand even more for his people. And I don't get it. You're standing for your people, but now you're really standing for your people. But all, I can, all, I can, all I've concluded through this is God has always been with his people, but in that crisis, he's going to be even nearer to his people. He's going to be right with them, holding their hands through the journey. Oh, bring it on. If I get to hold the hand of Jesus, let's go. Let's go. Zechariah 2, verse 8. For this is what the Lord Almighty says, after the glorious one who sent me against the nations that have plundered you. For whoever touches you touches the apple of his eye. I love that line. The apple of his eye. I, 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 we just talked about that. What was it yesterday? What's that? What's the what's the uh, the Spanish translation for apple of your eye? You know what it is? La niña. They say, There's no such thing as la manzana de su ojo. That doesn't make any sense, right? <laughs> There's no such thing as that in Spanish. It's la niña de su ojo, the little girl of your eye. Do you know what the Hebrew? is for that for Zechariah 2.8 also repeated in the Psalms the apple of his, of his eye the, the Hebrew expression is the little man of his eye you know what that comes from as you get eye to eye with somebody and I know it's been a whole year since we've gotten nose to nose with somebody eye to eye and you look into their eye you see a little you the Hebrew for this you are the apple of my eye. Whoever touches you touches the apple of his eye. The Hebrew is, you're the little man of his eye. You are so close to God that when they look into God's eye, they see a little you. And when they look into your eyes, they see a little God. A little God, capital G. They see a little image of the one true God. That's how close God will be to us in this crisis. Nose to nose. When we look, when we look, I'm afraid, when we look, we'll look right into the eyes of God and we'll see a little us and we'll know we are that close to God. La niña de su ojo, the apple of his eye, the little man of his eye. My older sister had a daughter, Brittany. I called her I've always called her Boo. Brittany's never met her father. So my, my father, her grandfather, became that father figure for her. He took her fishing for the first time, taught her to drive. She's grown now and has a little boy of her own. But as she was growing up, she was kind of that much younger sister running around a little bit. I have a younger sister myself, uh, red-headed, fiery. Uh, I grew up wrestling with her, chasing, and having fights. You know, the good stuff. One of the things we used to do is we had a giant crab apple tree outside of our, our house, and we would, we would go take the crab apples Crab apples, you may find some good use for them, but they were useless 
in our home. Except, except they were the perfect size to throw at each other. Oh, they're the perfect size. I mean, just what else do you want? Just something. Just And so we would, we would fill our pockets or our shirts and we would run around the yard just chucking these things. The whole above the neck rule. And that, was, that, was, that was the millennial rule that came up in that generation. That wasn't, I don't know when it came up. Some elementary school teacher that never grew up with crab apples. Uh, we would throw these things at each other and just, that was our game. Around the house, around the trees, through the... So my little niece is over, I'm home visiting uh, one break during college, and uh, she says to me, hey, why don't you play with me? I okay, what do you want to play? Why don't we play something that you used to play? Okay. Hmm. Ooh, I know. I used to play with your Aunt Melinda. I used to play something outside with the crab apples. You want to you play that? Oh, sure, she said. This is a little girl that has won her way, is the, is the first grandbaby of my father, all right? And the fact that she's never met her father has kind of added a, a level of endearment to my dad, her grandfather. I should have done some math on this and figured that part out. But I take this little girl outside and I say, okay, get, just take your shirt and put as many of these crab apples in it as you can fill. Okay, you got it? Done. Okay, now what we're going to do is you back up. Okay. Back up, keep backing up. Okay. Now, <laughs> apparently I'm not as bright as, as some, give me credit, but um, okay, now you're over there. Now we're going to just, we're going to chase each other. I'm going to, you throw them at me and I'll throw them at you, all right? Okay. Okay. Now when I count to three, it's, it's go. And so you, you better throw or run or hide or something. three and game was on and I oh I was deadly those crab apples were and she stood there and I was like what else and then she drops her shirt and the crab apples and she, she runs up the porch into my parents house I had a moment of celebration, a little touchdown dance. I didn't, I'd never knocked out my opponent that fast. <laughs> Seconds later, my father emerges from the house. And all I remember is, is going tunnel vision and experiencing like one of those things where National Geographic, the guy's being chased by the lion and the camera's <laughs> like running through the safari. <laughs> You don't mess, you don't mess with boo in our home. And my father made that very clear. He'd always stood with her. He'd always stood for her. He'd, he'd helped her. He'd been her father figure. I'm proud of my dad for that. But in that moment of crisis, he really stood. That was the little girl of his eye. That was the apple of his eye. He didn't touch her. That's God's feeling toward us. And so 
there just doesn't seem any biblical way and any other way emotionally as a father for me to come to a conclusion that there is a time in which God, in the most difficult crisis of your life and mine, that God will say, I've got to sit this one out. It's not there biblically. And as a father, it doesn't match. The eternal father in heaven who has taught us fathers how to be fathers. So you touch my little girl, my little boy. You watch out. And while he understands that there is a time that he has to allow this crisis, he also knows that it will be a refining. It will be a time that we are drawn closer to him spiritually and physically even. We are, we are closer to him physically than ever before. And he says, just hold on to me. Hold on to me through this. Hold on. I will be, I will be there with you all through this. And when this is done, watch. I'm going to make the people pay. I'm going to make the devil pay. I'm going to finish this for you. Jesus, as he ascends into heaven, says, hey, 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 just one more thing. I will be with you always, especially in that final crisis. Hallelujah. Now the, the fact remains, there are still two aspects of Jacob's time of trouble. One is a soul searching. And the second one, is that the God who has always stood for us stands for us. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.